You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Daniel chapter 3, 1 to 6. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue, the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what would you do? What would you do if your freedom of religion was completely taken away, if you were forced to worship something that you didn't believe in? That's exactly the situation we face in our reading today. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon makes this great big idol, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, that's 30 metres by 3 metres, and he demands that everyone bows down and worships it. Or else, verse 4, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. It's the choice that is no choice. Bow or burn. Worship or die. And everyone goes along with it. We hear their names again and again, the satraps, the magistrates, and so on. They know what to do, and they do it to protect themselves. Verse 7, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the instruments, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped, except for three men. See, in the crowd, there are three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They know that this is not right. They believe that their God, Yahweh, is the one true God, the only being worthy of worship, and so they refuse to worship this idol, Nebuchadnezzar's idol. They don't seem to have a problem with Nebuchadnezzar specifically. They've worked in his house for a long time, but they just want the freedom to practice their religion without coercion or consequence. And they aren't being offered that. There's no tolerance here. There's no respect for others' beliefs. There's no constitutional protections. There is no freedom here, no freedom of religion. So what will they do? And what would we do? Or even, what will we do? You see, as we continue our left and right series today, we come to a topic, freedom of religion, that feels like uh, a very relevant and personal and applicable topic for our day and age. 
You see, we are growing, we are in a, a moment in our time in the Western world where the freedom for Christian religion is being limited and pressed back. Uh, the Australian Christian Lobby reports that uh, uh, since 2019, the Human Rights Alliance has received over 250 inquiries and acted for 40 Australian clients who've been fired, investigated, harassed and ostracised because of their religious beliefs. In the UK, Dr. David Makarath, a, a doctor for more than 30 years, lost his job after refusing to use someone's preferred pronouns. He appealed this, arguing that his employer had breached his right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion, but a judge ruled against him, saying that a lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to transgenderism, in our judgment, is incompatible with human dignity and conflicts with the fundamental rights of others. There's a host of stories like this in the United States. In Atlanta, the city's fire chief, Kevin Cochran, was sacked after he wrote a, a men's devotional book in his own personal time, that briefly, uh, in which he briefly expressed his own conservative uh, thoughts about marriage and sex. Jack Phillips, a baker in Colorado, was sued because he felt uncomfortable decorating cakes for a same-sex wedding. Baronelle Stutzman, a grandmother and florist, was sued for, uh, for merely referring a long-term customer to someone else because she didn't feel comfortable providing flowers for a same-sex marriage. Uh, over in Canada, I was amazed by the story of Trinity Western University. It's a Christian tertiary college where all students are expected to sign a, covenant, uh, a community covenant pledge, uh, pledging, among other things, to abstain from viewing pornography and sexual intimacy that violates the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. It's basically a commitment to a Christian view of ethics there. This was seen as inappropriate by the local law society, so they refused the college accreditation. Basically, if you train at Trinity Western, you cannot be accepted as a lawyer in that jurisdiction. Over here in Australia, many of you would be aware of uh, the debates around religious schools. Uh, at City on a Hill West, we have a whole bunch of people who go to Heathdale Christian College. I know there'd be some here who go to Christian College or Covenant College here as well. And so you're probably aware of the, the debates around hiring practices. Uh, basically, there is an idea that you should never be barred from a certain place because of your race or religion or sexuality, but there are some kind of exceptions to this. It's long been seen, for instance, that a Christian school should have the right to employ only Christian teachers, just as a, a Muslim school should only be, uh, have the right to just uh, employ Muslim teachers. It's about maintaining their ethos, their religious ethos of the school. I mean, in the same way, it would be weird for a, a, an organisation campaigning against climate change to, to employ a climate change sceptic. It doesn't make sense. Or the Labor Party to employ a liberal person or something like that. But here in, uh, in Victoria, there are attempts to, to kind of take away that right, to kind of protect that. There are attempts to remove that special consideration or to drastically reduce it. And of course, here in Victoria, we also face the reality of new laws banning conversion therapy and gender suppression. Uh, I've, there is actually elements to these laws which I completely understand and, and, and can agree with. There's certain types of conversion therapy that I think are wrong. Uh, aversion therapy, for instance, or, or kind of uh, demanding that someone pray away the gay or, or kind of a, a deliverance ministry of that kind potentially can be hurtful and counterproductive if you're forcing that on someone. So we, we acknowledge as Christians that you can't just change how someone feels. It, it's, it needs to be God who does that work in their hearts, and it's supernatural. 
But this law goes much, much further than that. Under these laws, it's now illegal to carry out a religious practice such as praying with someone, even if that person has requested you to pray for them. To give an example, someone might come up to you after the service and say, look, I'm, I'm same-sex attracted, I, I feel like I, I want to resist this, I, I'm reading the Bible, I want to stay pure in, in, in the way I, I approach sexuality, can, can you pray with me? I, I just really need your help. It would now be illegal to pray for them or with them. Similarly, with the other part of the law, gender suppression. Uh, say, for instance, a young girl wants to begin the process of, of gender reassignment, uh, it would be illegal to kind of stop that. It would be illegal, for instance, for, even for a counsellor or a psychologist to say, look, you really need to think through this longer. We need, to, we need to work through some other issues first. Or, or a parent who's kind of saying, well, look, uh, maybe this is just a phase or whatever. Anything like that would be seen as illegal. I think the lobby group Freedom for Faith is right when it describes this law as the most aggressive action ever taken by an Australian government to attack freedom of religion. The question of freedom of religion then has become a very real and significant and pressing question for our time and our context. And today we're going to look at it in, de in detail. First of all, I want to think about why is it happening now? Well, I think it's because Christianity challenges the ruling religions of our day. See, the big idea that I've kind of been uh, thinking through throughout this series is that politics is the battleground of the gods. That's what the writer Jonathan Lehman, that's how he describes it. And I think, I think it explains the passions that we see when it comes to politics. Uh, everyone is religious, even the atheist or the secularist. We all worship something in that we all look to something to give us meaning and purpose and to explain how the world works and to shape how we should uh, live. And we bring these gods to politics. As Lehman puts it, the story of politics is the story of how you and I arrange everything to get what we most want, to get what we worship. And so, he says, politics serves worship and governments serve gods. And so, politics is religious. And right now, the ruling gods, the ruling religions, are secularism and the god of self. Now, secularism is the attempt to remove all religion from the public square. Freedom from religion, not just of religion. There's this idea that it, it contaminates and, it, and unfairly impinges on everyone else's ideas. But I actually think secularism is itself a religion. The religion of no religion. And it really stems from Genesis 3 and the Garden of Eden. If you look at that passage, you see how the devil comes to Adam and Eve and he tells them that if you eat of this fruit, then your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying, you don't need God. You can function without him. You can be God yourself. You can define what is right and wrong. That's what we wanted. That's what humanity likes. We like the idea of creating our own world without reference to the true creator. And that's what drives secularism in politics. We, we want to get rid of God, get him out of the public square. Uh, don't give him any kind of right or authority in our lives. So we want to drive God out, and then that leaves space for the God of self. Now, this is the age of self, the age of me. 
or as the writer Robert Bella puts it, it's the age of expressive individualism. It's a belief that at the core of each one of us, there is this feeling, this instinct that is guiding you, that really you are your own God and you need to express that. Uh, you've got to be true to yourself and there should be nothing that stops you. That explains everything around it. That's what all the television advertisements are about. That's what all the billboards are proclaiming. You be you. You've got to find that self. Or as the writer Andrew T. Walker puts it, this is the age of the imperial self, where the self rules everything. And so, crucially, anyone who tries to stop you pursuing that, expressing yourself, is oppressing you. And so they must be removed. And that's why the freedom of religion is being curtailed. You see, Christianity challenges the God of self. The Bible says that we aren't our own gods, that all authority lies with God because He's our Creator, that He's the one who defines good and evil. We exist not for ourselves, but for Him, Acts 17. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And that means that God gets to define everything about our lives. And so, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, addressing sexual sin, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your, in your body. I mean, that, that verse runs counter to everything in our culture. You are not your own. Your body belongs to God. And, and your task is to glorify God with your body, not to just please yourself. But that just runs counter to everything in our world. And so it's no wonder that Christianity is opposed, that it's seen as something that needs to be controlled or suppressed. That's what's driving this situation now. Freedom of religion is curtailed because Christianity is seen as oppressing this new religion that's going to create more space for the self. So what should we do about this? <laughs> Maybe that seems like a strange question. I mean, our instinct, surely, will be to fight. If our freedom for religion is being curtailed or limited, then our immediate response will be, well, we have to fight this. We have to get it back. But first of all, I want to consider the question of, should we defend religious freedom? Because there's actually a few reasons why we might pause before we do that. I can think of three. Here's the first one. It makes us look bad. So on the video, the left and right video, there's a quote from the US politician Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, otherwise known as AOC. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. And you often hear this, don't you? When we argue for freedom of religion, people see us arguing for the right to say and do things that other people find offensive. Oh, you just want to say that homosexuality is wrong or that transgenderism is a problem or it's contrary to God's plan for us. People see this as aggressive and offensive and even dangerous. They worry that this will stoke hate or even make people feel uncomfortable or perhaps harm themselves because they feel oppressed by Christians. So uh, one, uh, one commissioner on civil rights says that the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination and intolerance. Now, how do you feel when you hear that? 
See, some of us may feel very uncertain in our beliefs. If you hear it enough, we think, oh, maybe, maybe that's right. Like, maybe, maybe we should change. Maybe our views are out of date. Perhaps we need to get rid of them to make them more acceptable. Or we might still feel confident in our beliefs, but more wary about publicizing them. We might think, oh, I know this is right, but if I say this, it'll be, make people feel really uncomfortable, so I better retreat. We, I, I might withdraw from the public square and accept a, a smaller place in society. And really, that's what we're being offered when people talk about freedom of worship. There's a little bit of a distinction here. Freedom of religion means that you are free to practice your faith, but also to bring it into the public square. Now people are saying, look, look, you can have freedom of worship. It's okay what you think and, and believe and, and practice as long as it's at home or in the safety of the church, the privacy of the church. You just can't bring that into the public square. And so perhaps we just accept that. We just take freedom of worship and we don't ask for more than that. But perhaps we just need to accept a position of marginalization. And just you say, that's just what we've got. Or perhaps we even need to accept a position of persecution. Because here's the second thing. There is an argument that Christians should accept or not fight for freedom of religion because actually persecution and oppression is our natural state. Uh, Jesus did warn his people that they should expect persecution. John 15, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Paul said something similar to Timothy 3, all who desire to live a, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we see this all through the New Testament, don't we? And God's people don't seem to fight this. Acts 5, the disciples rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. They, they, they're, they're excited almost. But they're not fighting for freedom of religion here. They're honored that they would be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And so perhaps there's something almost unseemly about Christians demanding freedom of religion. Especially when you realize that the church tends to prosper in its most difficult moments. Uh, it's uncanny, it's, it's uncomfortable even, how often persecution leads to prosperity for God's people. So Tertullian in the second century famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Wherever God's people are pressed, they seem to flourish. And so perhaps then we shouldn't be fighting for freedom of religion because actually God's got a revival coming. It'll just be hard for us, but he will work through that. Maybe we should just accept that. And then there's a third reason that we might not press for freedom of religion. It's a little bit more philosophical. It's the idea that freedom of religion means freedom for false religions as well. You see, if we want freedom for our religion, then we surely have to accept that there's freedom for other religions too, even the wrong ones. I mean, we can't just say, oh, we want freedom for Christianity, but we won't extend that to, to Islamic faith, the Islamic faith, or we want Christian teachers in our schools, but we won't uh, fight for the same rights for Islamic schools. And perhaps that raises some questions. I mean, we believe that there is one true God, the creator of all people, and that we should worship only Him, the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Like, that's what we believe and have grown up with. And so, surely it's wrong for us to make a space for all these false gods to flourish as well. So John MacArthur, a Christian writer, actually says, religious freedom is what sends people to hell. 
To say I support religious freedom is to say I support idolatry, it's to say I support lies. Typically understated John MacArthur there. <laughs> Perhaps instead then, we should accept the limitations on our faith for the good of everyone. It's hard for us, but at least it will protect other people from false religions. And so the writer Tremper Longman says, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament suggests that li religious liberty is a right or even necessary for God's people. His point is not that religious liberty is a bad thing necessarily, only that it can be dangerous for the church as it gives the perception of special treatment and furthermore, it's not necessary for its flourishing. And yet for all that, I think that there are better reasons to defend religious liberty. I think there are things that should make us fight for this. In a nutshell, I think we should fight for freedom of religion because of the inherent dignity of humanity, the sacredness of an individual's conscience, which is something that I don't think the government has any right to interfere with. There's a lot in that, so let me unpack it. First of all, the argument rests on our view of human dignity. Humanity is this precious and extraordinary thing. Genesis 1:27. we are made in God's image. We're special, we're different to everything else. A tree is beautiful, a mountain is immense, I keep telling my cat that he's a noble creature, <laughs> but there's something glorious about humanity, because we are made in God's image. We have, and one of the, that means lots of things, but one of the things it means is that we have moral reasoning and a conscience. We can discern between what is right and wrong. That is central to what it means to be a, a human, and it's so precious that we have to protect that. That means we need freedom of religion, freedom to follow our deepest held convictions and beliefs. Aristotelian, again, says, it is a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature, that every man should worship according to his own convictions. And I think we see this in Scripture. Uh, writing to the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul speaks at length about the value and the importance of a person's conscience. We must each do what our conscience dictates. Romans 14, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And then he also says that everyone else should respect the conscience of someone else. Verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He's saying you should never try to pressure someone to go against their conscience forcing them to do something or, or mocking them. They have to do what they believe is right, what they are convinced of. And it's verses like that that have made uh, Christians right at the forefront of, of fighting for freedom of religion throughout the ages. Freedom of religion is essentially a Christian value, a Christian virtue that has come into the wider society because of Christians. Uh, one of the things that we've been thinking about in this series is how Christianity, we, we seek not to just control the world through politics, but we do want to influence the world politically because we think that God, the Creator, has a good vision for all people and we want people to see that and to experience that, to, to enjoy the blessings of that. And here's one of those examples. We fight for freedom of religion for all people because it's a basic value that God shows humanity has. 
And so Article 18 of the UN's International Convention on Civil and Political Rights says, everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. Uh, that's an example of Christians influencing the world in a positive way. And I think this has implications for how we should approach this. And really, it has implications both for the church and for the state. First of all, for the church. This means that we should never try to coerce someone into Christianity. We should never try to force religion on someone else. Uh, Christianity is a supernatural experience. It comes when God uh, steps into someone's life, convicts them of sin, and shows them the beauty and goodness of Jesus, and turns them to Him. Now, now we can't force that, and it can't be faked. And so as Christians, we should never try to uh, force Christianity on someone else. As, John, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that means that we have to allow people to have the freedom to believe the right thing, but also the wrong thing. And that means uh, the human conscience is so important that we should protect it for everyone, Christian and Jew, Muslim and atheist. That means we have to allow space for people to think the wrong thing. Because in creating that space, we give them an opportunity to believe the right thing, to hear the truth and respond to it. I found the writer Andrew T. Walker really helpful on this. He's got a great little book called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. He says, we defend liberty not to protect people's right to sin, but to protect their ability to live in accordance with their grasp of truth. Basically, he's saying we have to preserve this space so that people believe what they believe. So in answer to John MacArthur, we have to create this, this uh, ground where people can debate so that they can find the truth. Walker says, we can converse, contend, plead, and work to persuade every living person that the only God is the triune God, but because every person is made in the image of God, they should have the right to discern who God is without other people or government infringing on that quest. So, the dignity of the human conscience should shape the way the church uh, approaches these things, but it should also approach, uh, shape the way that the state approaches these things as well. Because we have a sense that the government's role in this world is limited by God. Christopher Kinsinger says, a biblical understanding of religious freedom begins by accepting that God has entrusted the state with a specific, limited type of authority. Uh, you might think of the world, uh, uh, God's creation, uh, He is the sovereign, He's over all things, but He's created these kind of spheres of sovereignty in the world. Things like the church, the state, academia, the family, all of these things. There are different spheres, and God has set up authorities in each one of them. Now, they kind of overlap in certain areas. So when we're building a building, we, the, we overlap with the building authorities and things like that. But there is a certain sense in which uh, there has to, we have to acknowledge the authority that God has given to these spheres. And so it's important that the government acknowledges its limits here. What's the role of the government? Well, I think it's to ensure a, a meaningful space for living. That's what the writer Johannes Riemer, that's how he describes it. Basically, it means that the government's role is to provide safety for the citizens. It's to ensure justice 
through to punishment of wrongdoing, and then facilitate prosperity, creating an environment where people can, can prosper and do well. I think that we see this in Scripture. So God sets up authorities, governments, and He expects us to honour that. Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. So there are certain things that we owe the government. But we also see a limit to that role as well. Just think of what Jesus says, Mark 12, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He's saying, pay Caesar what is due, his taxes, but don't give him what he wants, which is worship. He's saying that there is a limit to Caesar's authority. He can't get more than that. So on the same basis, the state shouldn't try to mandate a religion, shouldn't try to define what people think, because the state has great power, but it's also got, also got limits. See, God has instituted these authorities, Romans 13, so they have this extraordinary honour and opportunity. God expects us to honour that, He's instituted that, but because He's instituted them, He's also set the limit for their power. They only go as far as He allows. And so that means that the role of the government is limited and it shouldn't impinge on human conscience. You see, governments stand ultimately under God and are answerable to Him for how they fulfil this role. And I actually think that the ultimate place of the government is to allow space for God's truth to go out for the gospel. You see, becoming a Christian is actually a fairly straightforward thing. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all that's required. You just need to hear the gospel and respond to it in belief and faith. But Paul goes on to say, how then will they call on, him, uh, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? He's saying, yes, it's easy to respond to the truth if you've heard it, but you have to hear it. And so ultimately, the government's role is to ensure that people can hear the gospel, to create a space where the truth can go out. And any time where the gospel limits that, tries to stop the preaching of the truth, then it's defying God's commands. It's defying the role that God has given it. And you see this in 1 Timothy 2. Writing to the church at Ephesus, Paul urges them to pray for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see the, the logic here? He's, he's praying for the governors, for the leaders of the world that they would enable God's people to lead a peaceful and quiet life so that they can get out there and tell the gospel. That's what God wants. As Jonathan Lehman puts it, God intends for governments to build platforms of justice peace, order and flourishing for all their citizens so that the people of God can get on with their work. That's the task and a government must never stand in the way of that. And I think it's important for us to remember that because there might be a temptation for us to kind of idolise 
suffering and difficulty. I know for myself a few years ago, I was thinking about this concept of freedom of religion, and I thought maybe I shouldn't be fighting for this because, you know, God blesses the church when we're suffering. We should just kind of suck that up and accept that. But I think here is a reminder that we shouldn't glorify that. Yes, God can work in and for the church when things are hard, but he's still outraged that things are hard. He's still disgusted by those who would hamper the work of the church. And yes, the blood of the martyrs can be the seed of the church, but all too often it doesn't work out that way either. To give you an example, in the 14th century there was a Mongol emperor called Tamerlane and he pillaged the continent of Asia. They estimated that he, they killed 17 million people, which was 5% of the world's population at that time. And as that happened, uh, Christianity really went underground. God's people were afraid, fearful, they, they were scared of their, trying to protect their lives, and so the gospel was stymied. The gospel kind of was held back in its tracks. And so we see in that situation that the God is angry at Tamerlane because he is limiting the spread of the gospel. As Andrew Walker says, for the gospel to advance, it needs a pathway. And that pathway is religious liberty. I think then that we should defend freedom of religion because of the dignity of humanity and the preciousness of the human conscience, because of the the God-given limits to government and because God wants government to ultimately make a space for the gospel to go out. But in this last kind of 10 minutes, I, I want to think about how we should defend freedom of religion. You see, it's easy for us to defend freedom of religion badly. We can be convinced that we're right and go about it in a bad way. We can do it in a way that feels arrogant or proud, or come off as entitled, demanding rights for ourselves that we'd never extend to other people, or we can do it in a spirit of panic and fear that unless we have freedom of religion, it's all over, that we can't function without that. But I think there has to be a different way that we do that. And let me suggest a few things that we can do practically. The first thing is, we just need to pray. <laughs> It's an obvious thing, but it's so profound. You see, God calls us to pray for our politicians. Writing to Timothy, the Apostle Paul urges them to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. We should pray for them, whoever they are, wherever they are, however they treat us. It's a tough gig that they have. They have to balance the needs, the requests, the demands of people from all over their society. They work long hours, hardly see their families. It's incredibly tough. So I love this prayer from the Anglican prayer book. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, send down upon those who hold office in this state the spirit of wisdom, charity, and justice, that with steadfast purpose they may faithfully serve in their offices to promote the well-being of all people. It's a good prayer. And so I think in particular we should be praying that they would maintain freedom of religion. That's the God-given task that they have been, that God has given them, and we should pray that they continue to do that. And then when they seem to go against that, where they would seek to limit or restrict that or oppress God's people, then I think it's right for us to pray that God will intervene. 
I call this the three R prayer, that we pray that they will either repent, be reduced, or removed. Where there are ungodly leaders, it is right for us to pray that they will repent, that God will do something, that God will convict them of their sin and turn them, that they'll go from opponents of the gospel to advocates for the gospel, and that God will get the glory for that miraculous change. And we should pray this prayer boldly and confidently. Daniel, uh, Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And in fact, we see this in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is miraculously changed. Just a a chapter after the evil of Daniel chapter 3. So we pray that they will repent. And failing that, we pray that God will reduce them, that he'll reduce their power and their influence to protect the church and the witness of the gospel. And if that's not the case, we pray that he will remove them, that they'll be voted out or their sin and corruption exposed. Daniel 2, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And I think all three of these things are important for us to pray. It might feel a little strange for us to pray that someone would be reduced or removed. It seemed maybe a little aggressive But if you read the Psalms, you'll find plenty of things like this. Psalm 59, deliver me from my enemies, a little bit later. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. And that's just the nice lines in that Psalm. So it's okay for us to pray these prayers. And yet at the same time, I think that we need to also be praying that they will repent. Because sometimes I'm just constantly praying that they'll be removed. I need to also pray that that they'll change, that they'll repent. Remember what Jesus says, Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we be a praying people. And secondly, we obey wherever we can, but disobey whenever we must. God, the sovereign Lord of Lords, has instituted government, and we have to respect that, but that we also owe a higher loyalty to God. And if ever those two things come into conflict, our loyalty to God and our loyalty to the human government, then God must win. Just think of the disciples. In Acts 5, they're hauled before the authorities, and they're told, you've just got to stop preaching about Jesus, and then they reply simply, we must obey God rather than men. They're very clear on that. And I think that's what we have to be clear on too. We obey the government wherever we can, but we are always willing to disobey whenever we must. That's what I love in the example from our Bible reading of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. If you you read on, you'll see that they face this king who's greater than than we can even imagine, the most powerful man in the world, ruling not a democracy, but an empire, and his authority cannot be questioned or defied or challenged in any way. He's treated as a god, quite literally. I mean, this big idol is a way of worshipping him. No other god is allowed. There's no freedom of religion outside of this. And yet these Jewish men refuse to go along with it. They know God's law, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. And so they're just convinced, convicted, that that's the way that they'll do this. 
And I love their speech to the king. Verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They're not intimidated by him. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's, it's an amazing speech. They just have this incredible clarity. They're absolutely sure that there is a higher authority. In front of the most powerful man in the whole world, they're not overawed because they serve a higher authority. And they're confident that God can save them. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. And yet, despite that, they are entirely entrusting themselves to God. They say, God can save us, but He might not. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods. They're saying, we think that God is powerful enough to do anything right now, but we also believe that He's wise enough to do whatever's best. And we will entrust ourselves to Him entirely. He can save us, but if not, we're still not going to serve your God. May we be the same. I believe it's right for us to pray for and to pursue freedom of religion for ourselves and for others. But in those seasons where that's been challenged or taken away from us, we don't panic, we don't compromise, we trust God and follow Him. He can deliver us. But if not, we will not serve these other gods. And so finally, I want to invite us to be, to, to live as free people, no matter what. You see, at one level, all of this is academic. We may have freedom of religion officially or legally. We may be fortunate enough to live in a time and a place where we're allowed to pursue our religion. But even if we don't have that, even if the state is trying to stifle that, they can't ultimately take it away from us. Sure, it might cost us to practice our religion, but we can be confident that either God will deliver us or that He will come to us in our affliction. We cannot be bound if we're serving God from the heart. That's right. <laughs> and I love here the example of the Apostle Paul. I just love this guy's example. So when we meet him at the start of Acts, he's Saul and he's persecuting the church. See, when the Christian message came out, it went against Saul's gods as well the gods that he served, the gods of religion, the gods of uh, earning his way to Yahweh. That, that's what he believed in. And so he hated Christianity. And when the message went out, he tried to stifle it and to stop it. He, it confronted his gods, and so he wanted to stop it. He didn't want freedom of religion for Christianity. But then, on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus for himself, and he's completely transformed. He discovers grace he discovers God's love, that he doesn't have to earn his way to God, that God makes it possible for him, that Jesus has done everything that's required for him. And he discovers, in that moment, he discovers freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from fear. Freedom from the fear of death itself. And it completely transforms him. And we see this all through his ministry from that moment on. 
He's constantly trying to tell the gospel. In fact, whenever he's in prison, he's trying to tell the gospel. We see him contribute to the, to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And then in uh, Ephesians 6, he's, he's praying, for, he's in prison, and he's praying that he'll be an ambassador in chains, that I may declare the gospel boldly, as I ought to speak. So even when he is in chains, the gospel is not. And that's exactly how he describes it in 2 Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. That's our verse right there. Go away with that verse. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, the one who makes all of this worthwhile. The one who died for us, and so he is willing, he is worth living for. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember him risen from the dead. So even if you suffer, even if you're pressed down because of your faith, Jesus was pressed down all the way to the grave, but God raised him from the dead. So God will be close to us in any affliction that we face. And so because of this, live as free people. You might be bound, but the gospel cannot. And if the gospel cannot be bound, then we always have freedom of religion. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, the situation that we live in. We thank you that we have had the freedom to know you, to hear your gospel, and so many of us have been able to respond to it. Lord, we are troubled by the ways that that is changing in our culture and our time. But Lord, help us to be courageous in this moment, to rightly advocate for freedom of religion, not just for ourselves, but for others, because we believe it's important for humanity. But Lord, help us never to do this out of panic or fear. Help us never to come across as proud or arrogant or entitled. In this moment, may we come across as people who know the one who has given us true freedom, freedom over sin and death. Lord, help us to worship you in our hearts, in our lives, and in our society. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.